Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is John Van Lunen, and you are listening to Treasures of the Outer Banks, the podcast that celebrates the people and places that make this beach special. This is episode 042 with Charlie Beasley, the author of a book titled Vietnam War, Lessons of a Lifetime. Charlie, who also goes by Robbie, was born and raised on the Outer Banks and is still a commercial crapper to this day. When Charlie grew up here, the area was still very rural and undeveloped. He began commercial fishing at 11 years old and went to school locally until college when he attended East Carolina University. After college, Charlie served as an airborne ranger in Vietnam and was part of a five-man team known as a LERP, which stands for Long Range Reconnaissance Patrol. These small teams were designed to stealthily enter hostile territory, not engage the enemy, and bring back raw intel. Along with his combat stories of Vietnam, you'll receive plenty of crabbing information and stories of life on the Outer Banks. He's still a commercial crabber, fishing on the water almost every day. He has no immediate plans of retiring. Let's get started. First of all, Robbie, thanks for coming out today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're very welcome. And you were born on the Outer Banks? Yes, I was born here in 1947, and my dad was... Born on my dad's 50th birthday, he was born here in 1897, and my mom was 20 years younger than him. <laughs> Were you born in a hospital or just? Uh, let's see, I was uh, actually, I grew up on, uh, at, at the home site over on Collington Island, the second of two islands west of the Wright Brothers Memorial, but I was actually born in a lady's home in Manio, North Carolina. Okay. Yeah. Was she like a midwife kind of? Uh, not, uh, yeah, my mom said something like that. Okay. Yes, I believe. Wow. Uh-huh. wow. Yeah. And, so when, and so when you were growing up on the Outer Banks, was Collington kind of your home turf? Uh, yes, uh, I grew up, uh, Collington had a single lane dirt road in there when I, when I was a uh, child. And uh, I remember I might have been five or six when they started one time paving uh, that road. And uh, anyway, uh, eventually they made it uh, wide enough that two vehicles could, yeah. could drive on it. But, and and uh, where did you go to school back then? Okay, I went to the uh, I went to elementary school in what the old Judy Rand Apartments in Kitty Hawk Village. Uh, it, it became the Judy Rand Apartments uh, across from the Bob Perry Road in there. If you're familiar with that, but. Uh, but anyway, I don't know if it's still the Judy Rand Apartments or not, but it was, it was a school. And then when the, when the Kitty Hawk, uh, new Kitty Hawk Elementary School was built out there where, where uh, by the main highway where the baseball field yeah. and everything, that was uh, just, just a, uh, a more simple version of what they have now, I guess. But that uh, beginning in the, on the eighth, uh, let's see, I think mid seventh grade, we moved into that school when okay. it was when it was completed. So. Wasn't there? I, I thought I heard that were the I don't even know what they call it, the hostel, the, the youth hostel back on Kitty Hawk Road. Um, was that a, an elementary school at one point, or are we talking they, about the same thing? Well, uh, that that's possible. What you're talking about uh, up in Kitty Hawk, well up in Kitty Hawk Village, and right across the street, almost from it, they got the Bob Perry Road that goes down to where the Beecham's, I think, have. Uh, have yes. that harbor right. down there. Right. Well, that's where I'm talking about okay. right yeah. there. Yeah, I think so, we're in the same neighborhood. All right. Yeah, okay. Uh-huh. So that used to be the elementary school that right. we moved it over. And then uh, after that, did you have to go to Manio to go to yes, school? Yes, uh, I, I, I went to Manio uh, High School. Uh, I stayed, uh, well, yeah, I finished the eighth grade out, out there in Kitty Hawk. And then uh, 
then I had to uh, travel to Manio uh, 9 through 12. And uh, anyway, uh, uh, in Manio, I, I was big in sports. I played uh, all three, or football, basketball, and baseball right. at Manio. Yeah. And was it around that time you became a fisherman? Uh, I had I had been a fisherman since I was uh, 11 years old. We started uh, crabbing. My dad, my dad didn't have much equipment. He very very poor family. And uh, but anyway, we had a tiny boat and we started uh, uh, crabbing with with what we call a trot line, where we you you make a slip knot every four four feet and you've got a, a at that time at slaughter, slaughterhouses you could get barrels of uh, of the trimmings of of the cows the trimmings off the head and there's a little bit of meat on with the okay. hair so we cut that stuff up and you got put, that cheap and yeah on yeah on these trot lines and that's the way we caught crabs kind of a prehistoric way of crabbing but that's the way we did it back and were they then. kind of floating no uh what happens the um we we'd we'd set out a buoy and then we'd run out this barrel of line with a with a bait every four feet mm -hmm. and then we went back and um coming off of that buoy we would hook a line and we would have a board on the side of the boat with four pegs and a roller and we'd we'd put set that uh that line on top of that roller, and as the crabs came, as as the crabs were pulled up from the bottom as the boat progressed along, we we had a a wire basket type dip net, and and we were just dipping. They would hang on and come to the surface, and we okay. were dipping them off of that line. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Not a very efficient way of crabbing, <laughs> but although although yeah. I, I can say this, I can remember one day that I fished over my line four times and took it up and had 2,500 pounds of crabs. Wow. Uh, so, uh, that, and that, on that day, they were coming up with like three crabs hanging on each bait. Nice. Uh, and was that a two-man operation, one guy driving, one I, guy? Actually, we did that alone. We, really? We had, we, uh, we had a, uh, like a rudder on the back of a boat with, with uh, a tiller arm, and we would steer that okay. with, with our hips and our legs yeah. while we were, had our hands free for dipping those crabs. That's the way everybody right. did it. Yeah. Right. And you're kind of lifting up that line and scoop. Uh... Well, uh, the line was coming up. Uh, it, we had it tight enough that it wasn't coming right straight up. It was coming up at an angle, so you could see a crab coming right. in time to uh, to uh, uh, dip it. Uh, uh, of course, the line when you started, the line would be on the bottom. But yeah. as you progressed along, and it came up across that that roller okay. that was attached to that board, and we dipped them off. Yeah. I got you. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And so at some point you have to go to Vietnam and was that right out of well, high school? No. Uh, when I uh, graduated from high school, uh, nobody on, on the, on that second island had ever enrolled in college and I, and I, my family was poor enough. I wasn't sure I could do it, but, uh, I talk about in my book, the uh, Vietnam war lesson of a lifetime. I talk about how, um, how when I got to East Carolina University, I avoided uh, anything that wasn't free and hamburg, <laughs> hamburg, fast food burgers back then were 15 cents each. So, yeah. so it, it was really cheap. You could all, I could almost get by on, on, on a dollar, on less than a dollar a day if right. I wanted to, right. you know, and so, I mean, it, it, it taught me a lot about finances uh, out of necessity, yeah. you know, because, uh, uh, money was at a premium back then. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people were, as, as I've 
kind of found out a lot of people were scratching out a living back then yeah, on the Outer Banks. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't a ton of wealthy people just rolling no, off the beach. No, no. And how many years were you at ECU? Okay, I, I graduated. Uh, I graduated Manual High School in '65 and ECU in '69. I immediately volunteered for the draft to wow. get that behind me. Right. And uh, and uh, in March of 1970. I was an Army Ranger with the 75th Infantry Rangers in uh, in Vietnam, working for the 1st Cavalry Division. Was it pretty much a foregone conclusion? I'm, I'm joining the military and they're probably just going to ship me off to Vietnam? Uh, no, I actually, I, I wasn't sure. I mean, uh, we knew the Vietnam War was going on, but I, I wasn't sure about that. And uh, when I got out, of, I went to uh, basic training at Fort Bragg and then to advanced infantry training at Fort Lewis, Washington. And then I, I got my orders to go to Vietnam. And, uh, and when I went to Vietnam, I, I landed at a place called Long Bin and, and I was just waiting a couple of days uh, uh, not with no expectations of where I was going to be uh, uh, sent or what unit I'd be with and the Army Rangers came recruiting and uh, they, they said you, uh, even though you're going to be working in five-man teams your chances of survival are better with us because the enemy we're so stealthy that the enemy never knows where we are generally. Right. right. But, but anyway. And and was this, um, were you part of a alert team, long range yes, reconnaissance I, patrol? I, I, we, we were called alerts. Uh, and our, our job was surveillance. We would, yeah. uh, we would set up monitoring trails and, uh, and you could feel the tension in the air sometimes because if five guys, we were painted black and green and wearing camouflage clothes and all of our skin painted black and green, but, uh, but uh, still if 500 enemy troops come by and it seems like it takes forever to get by you and you know if somebody coughs or sneezes, you're dead. So the tension, you could feel the tension in the air yeah. uh, on, on surveillance uh, missions. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And just so uh, the listener knows, uh, Long Ranger Reconnaissance Patrol was not out to engage the enemy. Oh, it no. was just out to find intel and just hey. raw data. How many people, where are they, which yeah. direction are they going in? I, our job was to determine what enemy unit was in an area and how, how, how strong their unit was because our infantry was getting ready to go into that area and they needed to know what to expect uh, when, if they were going to move into that area. So we were basically an intelligence gathering right. uh, five-man group. And how many days were you out in uh, the jungle? Okay, we uh, we our missions were were supposed to be five days, and in my book you'll see some of them began and ended on day one uh, because of, of a conflict. Oh. I mean, of uh, because of. Uh, uh, maybe a firefight with the enemy. You accidentally or, engaged or, or, or something. In, in one case, our gunship went down, and we and we had to uh, before before we ever got on the ground to start the mission, we had to go in to uh, to try to rescue. Uh, well, we were supposed to uh, rescue the pilots and the helicopter, and in that particular case, I write about in the book uh, when we looked through that sleep blue windshield, both pilots their necks were broken they sure. on impact with, yeah. with the trees and the ground so but anyway uh, 
Uh, we we kind of skipped over uh, oh, yeah. getting into the Rangers. Oh, yeah. How right. hard was I mean? Do you remember like, geez, this is the hardest thing I've ever done oh, in my life? Uh, yeah. What what happened uh, when I went to Ranger training camp? Their their job, uh, which uh, later on I, I I could see what they were doing. They tried to force you to quit. Uh, yeah. uh, the the Ranger training was so difficult. You, generally, about one person in four would make it through. But that was that was really what needed to happen because on a five man Ranger team, one weak individual can get all five guys killed. So uh, we needed five strong and not only strong physically but strong mentally too because uh, I, I say in my book that was my first experience with guys that could stare death in the eye and remain so calm that it was unreal. Uh, the training I, guys? Yeah, uh, no, our ranger teams. You, our, your our, fellow my, rangers. My, my uh, guys that had been there before me, right. I, I was amazed at some of them. I mean, like on one occasion, uh, a group of enemy uh, passed by my team leader and they were only like three or four feet from him. And, and he was standing in an upright position because uh, when, when it happened so quickly, the movement, and we were so close that all five of our guys ended uh, standing in an upright position without moving. And uh, anyway, it was, it was amazing how calm those guys could, could be. I hadn't seen that before. Right. So, so you're doing these uh, reconnaissance patrols, right? Um, and were, and were you in the field for what a year? Was it two years? Uh, yeah, I, I was in Vietnam 14 months. It, originally, uh, a tour would be 12 months, but I stayed 14. But uh, but anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, I I had a, a a really good. My first team leader was a really good team leader, a guy named uh, Charlie Ochoa, a Mexican out of uh, San Antonio, Texas, and I learned a, a lot from him. And and after getting a chance to get to know a lot of people, I, I I realized how lucky I was to have him as my first team leader. But anyway, after about uh, after a few months, he went back to he he left, but. Uh, I had become a team leader after about six months, and one day he walked back into company area, and he said, I want to go out on your team and see how well I taught you. But it turned out that was the only mission he made when he came back. He, he really had a job already. Uh, uh, it, they had already uh, lined up a job, a special job for him when he came back, but he did make that one mission uh, with me on my team. When and back. was he a six man essentially? Uh, no, uh, he was part. Actually, we we took we had a five man team okay. then, but uh, I don't recall. It was not unusual sometimes to have a team that stuck together for for uh, weeks or months, but then it was also not uh, not unusual for occasionally to drop one and pick up another sure. sometimes. And does each, each member of the team come in with a specific uh, specialty? Uh, yes, skill? Uh, like for instance on this on the mission that I described where the uh, where the team leader was so close to enemy that was passing right by within almost he could almost touch him. Uh, I, I was what they call the RTO. I was a new guy in country, but I was the RTO, the radio tele, uh, telephone operator. And uh, the team leader likes to have the radio close by. So in our company, a team leader had to had to take the the uh, the most vulnerable job, and that is walking point out right. front. 
and he walks point uh, uh, looking straight ahead. And as the RTO, I was, uh, he wanted that radio close. So I was second in line walking sideways facing right. And the guy behind me, uh, my um, uh, guy that ended up being my assistant team leader, African-American named Noah Williams, uh, he'd be uh, uh, walking sideways facing left and then mm. right on down the line. T the rear scout would end up uh, walking backwards facing behind us a yeah. lot. Yeah. I, re I remember reading about Vietnam and, and uh -huh. the radio guy had an antenna, so the right. enemy learned that if you can shoot around the antenna, you might be lucky enough to take out the leader. Does that uh, ring a bell at all? Well, uh, to tell, you, to tell you the truth, I think I think that might be more rumor than fact. Okay. I believe, although hey, although I had a, uh, I was in uh, advanced infantry uh, training with a fellow, uh, an African American named George Butler. And when he was an RTO, he actually had his antenna hit with a bullet though, okay. and cut his cut his antenna. That, that's the only time that that that, okay. that actually happened, I okay. believe. But again, you guys aren't trying to engage or trying no, to be as stealthy that's as right. possible. Yeah. Uh -huh. Now, as far as infantry, what you're referring to, very well could have happened, and I would not have known that because I, I uh, even though I conversed with infantry, that subject never came up. But anyway. Uh, yeah. yeah, and were they dropping you in with helicopters? Right. That what what would happen is uh, when we went to a fire base, there there would be the head of our radio team on a fire base uh, would uh, would overfly the four kilometer grid square that we were going to work in. They would overfly with a team leader. He would uh, the head of the radios would go out and they would uh, pick out a landing and a pickup zone in that four-kilometer grid square. And uh, and I mean the plan the plan was that we'll put you in here and pick you up over in a yeah. different spot. And of course, sometimes if if uh, depending on what happened during the mission, you know, yeah. Uh, uh, usually it, it went everything went to plan but not always but uh, but anyway that's the way that that we did it and uh, and our rangers carried our rucksacks well when we were being inserted uh, we uh, I tell about in my book that in on one mission I describe uh, uh, how uh, usually the helicopter will be uh, doing about a hundred knots and before you get to the LZ, he'll drop down right on the treetops and he's still doing 100 knots. And, and the trees I describe in my book as being dangerously close. But at the last minute, she slows and dips into the opening. And even before she touches down, we, we generally jump. But we have to be careful not to jump too early because we're carrying 80 pounds. And, and, and uh, we start out carrying 16 quarts of water each and with all the weapons and ammunitions and claymore mines and and uh, and uh, so many other things that uh, we, we're heavily loaded, but we generally jump before the skids touch the ground, and then the helicopter will dip its nose and and. Uh, when a helicopter dips its nose, starts moving forward, uh, all of a sudden you'll you'll hear a sign change in in the rotors, and she's up and away. That that's the way they do it. But uh, but uh, when they pick up a ranger team, they generally try to raise straight up in the air, which is not easy with a heavy load on. But uh, they'll try to get up as high as they can because they got to have clearance to clear those treetops. Right.
Right. Were you when you were once you got on the ground? Uh-huh. Were you guys usually traveling at night, or uh, you know no. what? What generally happened was this: we we would uh, we would get inserted in a clearing, then we would try to find some kind of a tiny little opening that was covered by uh, uh, generally uh, grass and and scrub, green scrub bushes or something to give us cover, and we we would set up to make a communications check, but we we did not want to move for about four. 45 minutes because we wanted to find out if anybody was was close by when that helicopter put us out and if, if nobody was close by after about 45 minutes if we had a communication check we had a relay uh, a, a relay station called Yankee and it was on uh, top of a mountain called Nui Baden and uh, if we had uh, that would be our source of communication uh, during the five-day mission. Now, the team leader, and w- which myself as a team leader, what, when we were being inserted, we were talking solely with, with the, uh, the lead pilot on the helicopter gunship. He was in charge. The, the gun sh- There's three helicopter. It took three helicopters to insert a Ranger okay. team. One was the green olive drab uh, Huey lift ship that was carrying the team, and we were sitting on the side with it when we left the flight uh, the flight pad. We were already sitting on the side with our legs hanging out and gripping a, a um, metal ring on the floor of the helicopter behind us, but we were not strapped in. So, I mean, uh, it, uh, but as long as you held on to that metal ring, you were not in danger of, of going over the side. But, uh, but anyway, we were prepared to jump from the moment we left the flight pad. Uh, we were not restricted in any way. But, uh, but anyway, what happened, uh, uh, we had already, uh, the team leader already had been up, you know, and picked out a, a landing zone for the insertion. And uh, just prior to being inserted, we, we had this uh, little OH-6. It was like a glass bubble helicopter, or tiny, tiny, tiny helicopter, just big enough for two pilots right. up front and two door gunners behind them. And, and uh, they would drop down right on the treetops and, uh, and they'd circle right around the, the landing zone, which uh, they were very vulnerable to being shot down. It was my first experience with people that would risk their lives in order to save the life of somebody else. But anyway, they, they would make sure that we were not being inserted in, into a hornet's nest right, right. to begin with. Right. And uh, just prior, what would happen, they would exit that landing zone in time for the lift ship coming in. Well, uh, the whole time this is happening, that uh, Cobra gunship is circling slowly overhead at 5,000 feet, and he's got too many guns, rockets, and all kinds of ordnance. And uh, as I tell in my book, that that was the chopper that was most feared by the enemy. Yeah. That, that helicopter gunship, he could fire 10,000 rounds a minute with those mini guns. Right. So, uh, so it sounds like the little chopper would come in, maybe draw some fire, no, maybe well, scare some people. They were a little hoping bit. not to draw yeah. fire. They were, hope, <laughs> they were hoping just to make sure that that. Uh, see, they could. They uh, I've I've read accounts where they could even see a cigarette butt on the ground. So. Uh, 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 anyhow, their job was to really make sure that we, we could always abort a mission and and go right. somewhere else. So their job was to make sure that there were not a lot of enemy right around that, that landing zone that we were getting ready to be inserted in. Right. Mm-hmm. 
And then, of course, the the, uh, the gunship was there in case oh, yeah, things the, went south. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. And and I tell about in uh, on chapter one in my book, I tell about one mission I was a team leader when it did go south too. Uh, so. Uh, in that case, the helicopter gunship did uh, save us on that occasion. Gotcha. And what was your uh, weapon of choice? I uh, uh, M3 had to use the M16 because if they had a perimeter set up like M3 uh, with, on a fire base, it might be 50 yards across that fire base. Well, they pretty much had to use the M16 because the uh, the AK-47 had a, had a very different sound to it, mm -hmm. and uh, and it would be confusing on an infantry unit if if uh, all of a sudden they heard the AK-47 firing on a certain portion of right. the base. But but Rangers, since all five guys were going to be together, then I started using the AK-47 because it had the 30-round banana clip, and and plus. They, they were, uh, the M16s were notorious during a firefight with a lot of dust flying uh, to jam sometimes, right. so I switched to that AK-47. Was, was the government military, were they distributing the AK-47, or no, did you not, have to not, pick one up? <laughs> uh, yeah, I did pick it up, and right now that's one of the things that uh, right offhand, I do not remember the circumstances, how I came by mine, but, uh, but they were available. But uh, as I explained, since Rangers were going to be all five of us tight-knit together at all yeah. times, we could, we could carry anything we wanted because we were not going to confuse our teammates. Right. We were all right there together right. anyway. But, you weren't fighting with the yeah, big masses yeah, uh, at all? Yeah. And then were, you, were a lot of the guys uh, carrying a handgun as well? Uh, the rear scout would, would carry this rocket launcher, but, but we did not carry handguns with us. Okay. No, we, we had, had the uh, weapons right. with lots of clips and lots of ammunition. <laughs> we had lots yeah. of ammunition. On, on chapter one in my book, I'll just briefly tell you that what happened was when we were set up, we did. Uh, we, we were in a low-lying area n near a river. We didn't have communication, and the helicopter pilot, the gunship pilot, says, "I'm going to have to break station and go to a fire base to refuel." He said, "But I'm going to get up really quick to check on you guys because he knew at that point we couldn't contact our relay Yankee on the mountaintop. We're in a low-lying area next to a river. We're in a dead zone, is what we were in. Right. But anyway." Uh, while he was gone, enemy showed up uh, to come to check. Uh, they were they were just very stealthy, um, not making a sign. But the African American Noah Williams, uh, he reached over and squeezed my arm, and I glanced his way, and he was staring at something to our north. So I knew somebody was coming. But anyhow, they they were walking right up to us. And well, they, when they got inside of 15 feet, they still hadn't seen us. And as I tell in the book, everything was deathly still. And when Noah Williams clicked his M16 from off to semi to full automatic, she went click, click. And it sounded like it shattered the stillness. Right. And the enemy heard it too. But as I say in the book, they had less than one second to react. And uh, anyway, to make a long story short, when uh, when the gunship, uh, I was on, I was yelling into the mic. Um, uh, Yankee, our our ranger team was uh, slashing Talon five two, and I was saying Yankee uh, Talon five two contact over, and the gunship got up off the fire base and he heard me, so he broke in and started talking to me. So when he got on station, we popped our a smoke, 
And um, anyway, um, so you made contact. Uh, yeah, you still got yeah, out. Yeah, he he identified he identified the color of the smoke, and from there I could tell him. Well, like okay. like like uh, army army jargon, they make you use a certain language. Like I would say, we want you to make you run from November whiskey to Sierra Echo. That's northwest of southeast. Okay. And I said one zero mics. That'd be ten meters from the smoke. And he came <laughs> back and said negative. I'll hit you if I fire right. that close. But anyway. He, he lined up and started coming in at about a 45 degree angle and uh, tree limbs were falling and dirt was flying everywhere and the whine of bullets. But anyway, uh, after he made a couple of runs, I was able to raise up and I could see two bodies not far away in enemy. And, uh, but the, the most dangerous thing was, see, higher ranking officers back on a fire base they they could say something that you might say well that's easy for you to say what happened right. they told us before we could be extracted we had to go out in that open area that a few seconds before was a hot fire zone and we had to strip the bodies and gather get, bring back the clothes and weapons for intel to inspect on the fire base and right. uh so I could feel myself being shot when we uh, stepped out in that clearing. But the, I'll give the gunship credit. I think he, uh, when those gunships are in there firing 10,000 rounds a minute, not too many enemy hanging around. So, <laughs> so anyway, we were able to, uh, I was the team leader then. I had to strip the bodies, but my team was, was down on one knee with weapons at the ready. But uh, it didn't take me long to strip the bodies and um, we were, but it was almost dark. It was getting dark as the as the Huey lift ship picked us back up. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And how many how many missions do you think you did in uh, uh, fourteen months? I think we had. Uh, I I got an air medal, and and I, as I recall, we were supposed to do thirty six missions to get an air medal. So, and I do not know how. Uh, I lost kind of how many missions that I was on, but I do know this. I was feeling like toward the end that uh, I had so many close calls that I felt like that, uh, that I had used up any, uh, uh, I had gone way beyond any luck that I should have had. Right. So, uh, so anyway, I was approached by our, uh, uh, by our company commander and he said, I want to make a deal with you. He said, uh, he said, the army had a rule back then, if you, if you had less than 150 days left in, in service in your term uh, that you signed up for uh, when you left Vietnam, you could get an early out of the service. So he said, if you'll spend two extra months on this, uh, in charge of our radio relay team, that'll put you down to 149 days. And uh, so that's what I did. <clears throat> but, but when he gave me that deal, I felt like that he was almost guaranteeing that I was going to survive Vietnam. Because see, uh, it, this week in the Coastline Times, I was interviewed uh, uh, when that wall came here in South Nags Head, I was interviewed numerous times by radio and TV and stuff down there when the wall was here. But uh, but this week in the Coastland Times, they, they had me write something about what the wall meant. And I tell about how uh, how uh, this the guy that took over my position as team leader was was a 20-year-old kid from uh, uh, from Kentucky named Omer Carson, a red-headed kid, went to a single-room school in rural Kentucky. Anyway, 
he brought that team to the fire base where I was working and head of the radios and and uh, anyway I said I said man I said you're short which means you're about ready to go home mm-hmm. he said yeah I'll have six days left in country when this mission's over so I tried I tried to tell him I said you're going uh, I said don't push your luck you're going uh, you know you got to be careful anyway on day two of the mission I tell about this week in the Coast and Times it'll come out uh, I tell about on day two when the news came that the Tango Lima, that's a team leader, was a line one. See, a line two is wounded, a line one is dead. Mm-hmm. Anyway, when the news came, I, I say, all I could do is just lay my head on my desk when I heard that. But anyway, already the the team leader of that team five two before me was Deverton Cochran and uh, this uh, Omar Carson, his name was on panel W6 uh, down there at the wall. Well, Deverton Cochran, a team leader ahead of me, was on W9 along mm. with my best friend Carl Laker. The two of them got killed together in Cambodia. And I wasn't far away when they got killed. I was on a, on a different Ranger team, and, uh, but we weren't far uh, from them, uh, like five miles away from what they called LZ David. And they were doing recon as well? They, they, we had two teams out there. And what happened, they got inserted into a relatively open area and they were looking for cover to spend the night and they walked right into a camouflage bunker complex that was occupied. Mm. And, uh, and the team leader, Cochran and Laker, got hit right at the entrance. They, they never moved and we never recovered their bodies either. Two, two of their other team got badly wounded. One guy was not hit and he, uh, a friend of mine uh, named Dwight Clark, uh, they threw one of those Chicom grenades. He was laying on the ground and he said when the grenade went off, his leg was lying across his back. And, uh, but this African-American guy named Hancock picked him up and carried him out of the kill zone. And he actually spent the night with that broken leg in some elephant grass, but he did survive. He was rescued the next day. And the, uh, they, did, they had no communication because my good friend Carl Laker had the backup radio on his body when he was dead. And, uh, and the main radio, uh, a bullet went right through it into the chest of the RTO, and he spent the night in that elephant grass also. And he, he survived. He, he was rescued the next wow. day. Uh, and, and just real quick for the listener, uh, uh-huh. we're talking about the wall that heals. Right. It's, a, um, it's basically the traveling version of the Vietnamese veteran memorial that you'd see in Washington, D.C. Yeah, three-quarter size replica. Three-quarter size replica. Right. Thank you. I did, uh-huh. not, did uh-huh. not know that. Uh-huh. And it was just here last week uh, for several days and uh-huh. uh, a chance for some of the locals to, to come out and, and check it out and honor the, yeah. the people that died in Vietnam. They said 6,000 people came by wow. one day there That's on amazing. a Saturday, I think. That's what they said. Yeah. I've seen the uh, the original in, in D.C. It's it's a it's an emotional yeah. visit. It's yeah. uh, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, so let's see. We're you're uh, you've got all these missions. Well, well, let's talk about the book. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's see. So so 
when I talk, when I, we had a long conversation, you and I last spring, this uh -huh. was just an idea back then. Right. Yeah, <laughs> so I was a little yeah. surprised it, when you walked yeah, up with yeah, the book. Yeah, it came in print, I think, in June, I believe, and uh, and I have never put the book on Amazon, but uh, like this summer, Billy Seafood over on Collington Island sold many copies, nice. and uh, Dime Time Books in Manio, O'Neill Sea Harvest had it down in Wanchies, and uh, but I think I think there's like 500 copies of it now in Dare County here, yes. and uh, and the. Uh, I get a lot of pleasure out of the fact that uh, people read it and will go out of their way to tell me, uh, call me up and tell me how much they liked it and everything. Right. So, uh, and why did you decide to write it? Well, I wrote it basically uh, while I was still living. I wanted uh, uh, upcoming uh, students, uh, school kids, especially high school uh, kids in future generations, I wanted the book to be out there so they could get a first-hand uh, look at what the jungles of Southeast Asia were like uh, from somebody that actually lived the story being told. And, right. uh, and uh, during the course of this, uh, from chapter to chapter, you'll, you'll get uh, a picture of just about everything that happens uh, to ranger teams in the jungle. And, and talk about infantry, and I talk about the Vietnamese people, and. Uh, and how they suffered and you know uh, I start out by telling that uh, uh, in chapter one I talk about how our military set up uh, free fire zones where supposedly there were no civilians but then I follow up by saying the sight of children running with their clothes on fire after a napalm strike on a village is right. something not to be forgotten. Right. And uh, and then I I tell I, I tell about this this guy named Nick Ut uh, U T. Uh, he was uh, Vietnamese and. Uh, he took a picture, he took the most famous picture of the war, I think, and they said was, was, uh, had, had, was influential in ending the war. It was a nine-year-old girl running towards him, and uh, she, she, had famous, ripped, yeah. she had ripped all of her clothes, her burning clothes off, and she was completely naked, and uh, he took the picture, and there was a lot of other little kids running with her, but anyway... Uh, uh, that that turned out to be one of the most iconic photos of the war. And if you Google Napalm Girl, you'll see that, that right. photo and uh, and you'll be able to read all about how that happened. She she was in a village of Trang Bang, Vietnam, playing with other kids in a temple. And, uh, and a napalm strike had been had been planned for that day, but uh, there was Viet Cong in in an, in the village of Trang Bang and also on the outside. But they were going to plan a napalm strike for in the village and the temple where the girl where the kids were were supposed to have been off limits. But soldiers told them to start running. And uh, anyway, there was a mishap where the pilot thought that those kids running from, from way up in the air, he thought they might be an enemy, so he actually hit them uh, with a napalm. And, uh, and anyway, this, this one photo, though, was influential in, in sort of ending the war, I think. Right. Mm -hmm. And what, what do you think went wrong in the Vietnam War? Well, I, I think it was a purely uh, political war. I, t I talk about early in the book how much I, I said I want everyone to know how, how much I love America and my total allegiance is to this great country, but I'm going to be critical of decisions made by our leaders in this war. And uh, 
like uh, President Johnson did not want to be the first president to, uh, to withdraw and lose a war, but uh, when, when two million people lost their lives, I, I think uh, if I was president, I would be happy to save those lives, and no matter how much criticism I got for losing a war, we were never gonna win that war. See, the, our government was promoting the idea that we were winning the war. And Walter Cronkite, who I guess is, is probably the, uh, uh, the most esteemed uh, anchor on TV in, in my lifetime, he went to Vietnam and, and the country was shocked when on national TV, he said, we are not winning and we cannot win. Mm. Uh, and see those, uh, I talk about in the book how they had 300 miles of tunnels underground right. and some of them went to four and a half stories underground. And, uh, and uh, like uh, one tunnel area in, uh, northwest of Saigon, there were 16,000 uh, Viet Cong using that tunnel complex. And plus, the Vietnamese said, if our death rate does not exceed our birth rate, we can fight for a thousand years. Now, how are you going? I mean, we, we could contain them, but who is going to, uh, who's going to over a period of years lose, lose your, 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 uh, I mean, lose your soldiers and, and, and your capital necessary to contain them. But we were never going to, they were spread out over 1,400 miles. Vietnam's 1,400 miles long. It's a thin, narrow country. And with, uh, the, um, South China Sea on one side and, and Cambodia and Laos on the other. And I spent time in, in the, a lot of time in Cambodia. We, well, we were allowed to go in there for 60 days and our teams made several missions in there in Cambodia. That's where, that's where my, my best friends were killed was in Cambodia. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, how often did you go to Cambodia? Uh, well, uh, see, uh, uh, let's see, um, uh, uh, the the Cambodian uh, Cambodia uh, changed prime ministers uh, and uh, let's see in in the spring of 1970 and uh, we were given permission uh, President Nixon already had permission to uh, uh, do bombing runs in in that country but we were given permission for 60 days a two month period to go in there. See, the Ho Chi Minh Trail is really a series of trails. Mm -hmm. and, and, the, uh, and the western part of the Ho Chi Minh Trail actually comes down through Cambodia. Right. And when, Viet, Viet, when the North Vietnamese Army was resupplying Viet Cong in the south, they, they were eluding our American troops by coming down on that western uh, through Cambodia. Right. So when we went into Cambodia, we, we found one uh, underground tunnel set, uh, pl uh, system that was so large that it was nicknamed the city. Uh, they, uh, Did you go to many, into many tunnels? Uh, I, I, we had tunnel rats, but, and I was happy that I was not part of that. <laughs> hey, in my book, I state that it was said that the life expectancy of a tunnel rat inside a tunnel was three seconds. And <laughs> the reason they said that is because so many of the entrance to them were booby-trapped and right. they would get killed trying to get in. Right. But, uh, but some, it sounds crazy to me, but some guys in our army volunteered to be tunnel rats to go in there. Wow. And uh, anyway, uh, 
but uh, I, I that was a job I did not want, and uh, and our I, none of our rangers ever did that kind of stuff. But I tell you what we did, we uh, we would crawl a mile through mud and water in order to avoid and thick brush in order to avoid using their trails. Eleven percent right. of our deaths in Vietnam were from booby traps on those trails, and uh, rangers were not allowed to use trails. But this team leader, my first team leader, Ochoa, he saw one of our guys one time standing on a trail. We, we were supposed to never leave any footprints. And he came back and he said, if I see you standing on a trail again, you won't have to worry about the Vietnamese. I'll shoot you myself. And uh, he, he didn't mean that literally, but he said things. That, so And anyway, that, that guy, a guy named, uh, friend of mine named Donahue, his wife said years later, my husband was scared to death of a chore <laughs> after, after he said that to her. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you guys probably were pretty good at you know, map reading oh, and reading yeah. terrain. We, and we, we always carried a map inside of a plastic uh, cover and uh, we could uh, upside down or right side up, <laughs> we could read those maps. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, anyway, we knew when trails were close by and the one instance when I was talking about uh, my team leader named Comstock that was so close to the enemy as they passed by him, we knew a trail was close and, uh, and uh, what happened, we were going parallel with the trail and all of a sudden it, it took a hard left turn in front of us and when uh, I was walking second in line and all of a sudden there's movement right in front of me real close, I froze but uh, Luckily, Comstock, uh, he sensed that I had stopped, and he, when he turned, he was about to step out on that trail that had made the hard left turn in front of us. That's how come he was so close. When, when they passed by me real close and then made the turn in the trail, then the, he could almost reach out and touch them as they passed by him. But, uh, but luckily, they were walking briskly, looking straight ahead. Right. Now, the one part I didn't tell you, they had a German shepherd following them, and he stopped when he got to us, and uh, <laughs> we were in green ferns, and we were painted in the face, and our bodies were not visible, but he was sniffing in the air, and, uh, and after five seconds, he turned and started trotting to catch up with the soldiers, and I describe in the book, I could finally breathe again when that <laughs> happened. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Did we um did we learn any lessons from uh, that that's Vietnam? reason my book is a lesson of <laughs> a lifetime a <laughs> uh, and uh what what uh what we we learned over there is well we didn't we didn't learn it sufficiently because uh we we're relearning it in places like Afghanistan but uh uh when you go into an area uh you uh you're you're uh, the people that live there they're, they're in, so in most cases, they're never going to give up, uh, which the Vietnamese, see, my college professors were promoting the idea that, that there was going to be a spread of communism from Asia to come over and affect our country over here. And that was something I did not believe then or now. But, uh, uh, and the proof of it was when we uh, see the South Vietnamese the North Vietnamese were, were very committed and, and, uh, and they, they had really, a really great army and, and they were committed to a certain ideology. But the South Vietnamese, 
they they cared about the small hamlets and towns and and their and their family so it was easy to understand why when the american troops were gone the north vietnamese were going to easily overtake i mean take over the south which is what happened uh the uh the south was did not have the uh well the south the army in the south was uh was well, they were not up to, uh, uh, psychologically, they weren't up to defending against the North, and uh, they would throw down their weapons, you know, if, if, if they were in trouble. But anyway, when the North took over the South, now we're, we, we're friends with Vietnam, and, uh, you know, so the proof of it is, is that uh, we shouldn't have been there to begin with, but... Uh, but I was hoping we learned a lesson in that all those civilians got killed in the meantime. You know, we had the one uh, in my book, I do not mention names, but we had this one lieutenant who took his, uh, his, his infantry unit into a, a, uh, a village and uh, in that village was old men, old women, and children, and he killed every one of them. Uh, he, we even had a helicopter pilot in one of those little uh, observation helicopters, the glass bubble type. He had seen 500 dead Vietnamese in a ditch, and, uh, and there was, uh, some Vietnamese were trying to run with our troops pursuing them. He landed between our troops and, and those villagers, and on a loudspeaker, he said, I'm gonna have my door gunners fire on you American troops if you don't break off your, your chase right now. And uh, so he saved a lot of lives right okay. there, the guy named Hugh Thompson. But, uh, but anyway, uh, uh, now that was inconceivable to an Army Ranger how uh, they tried to pass off, that was the My Lai Massacre. Um, okay. uh, yeah, uh, and uh, anyhow, uh, people should Google that and, and read about it. Uh, the, the lieutenant, he came back to this country and he, he got a life sentence, but, but our government let him out after 18 months uh, from that life sentence. Uh, so, I mean, there was political strings being pulled there okay. somehow, but anyway, uh, but the Vietnamese, that's why I talk about in my book that the true victims of the war were the Vietnamese women and children mainly. Right. You know. And so your book, uh, it's it, you say it's in downtown yeah, books in down, Manio. Yeah, down there in Manio. Nice. And uh, Billy Seafood is closed for the season, but uh, but a lot of people will see me at, at ball games and all, all over the county, and they they'll I usually carry some of my truck, so that's how a lot of people nice. have the book. Uh, I'll, I'll mention to the listeners because I've I've interviewed mm -hmm. several uh, authors that uh, downtown books will ship to you. So oh, yeah. if you're not uh, mm -hmm. on the beach. You can give them a call, and, and, and you can pay for the book on, over the phone, and they will ship it to you. So uh, mm -hmm. be sure to pick up a copy of the book. Mm -hmm. um, wh where does the book, the, the, real quickly, because I haven't had a chance to read the book, uh -huh. the, the story starts when you enter the country, pretty much? Uh, actually, uh, I, I, start, I start out, uh, yeah, I, I start out in, uh, well, I have a fairly lengthy introduction to, okay. to the book, a fairly lengthy introduction, and I tell a lot about the sequence of events from beginning, I mean, I don't spend a lot of time on it, but but since I talk about from 19, uh, from 
from well I even mentioned the French going in in 1954 right. and see uh, I talked about uh, uh, Dien Bien Phu uh, it's, it was an area where the French uh, the French realized that, that just like we realized years later that they were never going to end up defeating the Vietnamese so they they brought their their troops to a place called Dien Bien Phu and which was a it was a flat area but uh, there were surrounding mountains and high grounds all around them and, and 50,000 Vietnamese troops occupied the high grounds and rained artillery down on them and the, the French had lost 100,000 troops over seven years. They had 11,000 left. Within a few days they lost 8,000 of that 11,000 troops and they surrendered. Okay, I mention that because William Westmoreland had our had six thousand of our Marines built build a fire base in a similar terrain in Quezon, right, which was right up near the uh, the Viet, uh, north uh, the uh, the north and south Vietnamese border in in the north. And uh, anyway, uh, what happened? The Vietnamese uh, surrounded our guys with artillery and rockets and they, they had even set up uh, heavy artillery in Laos six miles away that could easily reach that base. Mm -hmm. So anyway, oh, our, our guys uh, during that summer they had dug uh, underground bunkers and uh, anyway uh, rains washed out the roads in the early spring of 68 so uh, so uh, the only way they could be resupplied was with uh, uh, planes uh, coming in. They had, a, they, had, they had built a runway for planes to land on, but the artillery and, and the mortars and rockets were, so, were coming in so heavily that they generally would come in and didn't land. They, they would just, uh, uh, well, they dropped uh, food uh, under parachutes, and then as far as munitions, they would come in and not touch down, but they they would put a parachute to pull the uh, ammunition uh, uh, crates of ammunition right out their their open uh, bay door in the back, yeah. and uh, and it would skid to a stop on that runway, and the troops would have to pick a time when the artillery wasn't coming in to get that. But uh, but anyway, in over two months. Uh, we lost uh, 202 dead and 1,622 wounded. And the only reason we didn't get wiped out because uh, 6,000 flights a day were coming off aircraft carriers supporting those guys and B-52s came all the way from Guam. We killed 15,000 of their troops right around that base. Wow. 15,000 of them. And uh, I mean, we, uh, they said that the Vietnamese got pounded there, but they finally ended up uh, retreating. Was that just arrogance on Westmoreland's yeah, part to just they, put uh, a base I, I, or I his people in a yeah. compromising position? See, I mentioned in the book that knowing what had happened with the French at DNB and Fu, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to understand why he chose that same terrain to build right. a base. Now, the idea was they were going to build this base in order to stop uh, uh, NVA flow from north to south on Highway 9, which uh, uh, came from the east and winding uh, through Vietnam, uh, through Laos and Vietnam, uh, and we were supposed to stop north to south troop movement. But, uh, but anyway, to answer your question though, I have, a, uh, I have a lengthy introduction in this book which tells a lot about Vietnamese. I think most people like the, the, the introduction. It also tells about 
the Vietnamese girls that work for us in in our company area and lots of lots of things in there. Uh, but then I start out uh, I start out on chapter uh, one telling about a mission when I was a team leader, and then beginning in chapter two I go back to tell about when I first left East Carolina and from okay. that point and dur during my all my training and uh, and then uh, let's see. Uh, well, chapter one, uh, what happens is uh, we get we get into a firefight with the enemy. That's that's when that Noah Williams squeezed my arm and those troops were coming. But then I go back and tell about uh, my uh, my originally going into the army and and Fort Bragg and and Fort Lewis, Washington, and landing in Vietnam and Ranger training in Vietnam. Then in chapter three, I finished the rest of that. Okay. Um, I, I stopped right in the middle of that firefight on chapter one, and then I resume it in chapter three and telling about how, how to go out, have to go out and strip those bodies and everything. Uh, yeah. But uh, and then uh, and then I proceed. Uh, one chapter though, chapter four, I tell about how this Charlie Ochoa. Uh, prepared us, uh, taught us so much on the fire base before we ever went in the jungle. And then I tell about in chapter four about how uh, I was shocked by by uh, by by the the real life uh, features of being in the jungle. Uh, see, I was not prepared for it, but during the monsoons, it started raining at, at like uh, 10 o'clock in the mornings and would rain to like midnight, and you ain't <laughs> never seen rain like in the monsoons over right. there. Within, uh, the, the soil was hard red clay, and within uh, uh, a period of time, water would be six inches or, or deeper on, on the ground, but our when I went out as a new guy, I couldn't believe these guys. They, they, the, the experienced guys, when it was time to go to sleep, they lay right down in the water and put a, 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 a narrow wool blanket over their bodies and put their hats so that the rain weren't striking their faces, <laughs> and they were asleep within five minutes. They were sitting, and I said, "Good gosh, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm as tough as these guys." But I, but actually. The jungle gets cold at nighttime, but I, I talk about how I, I could I, I never thought that that I would receive any comfort from sleeping submerged partially submerged <laughs> in water, but I really got used to it to where it weren't a big deal at all. Right. Yeah. Did you ever uh, just stop and think, what are the kid from yeah. Kill Double Hills uh, doing well, in Asia? Well, well, hey, uh, in in one of the chapters late in the book, I tell about how. Uh, I said, I tell about how, uh, I said, it's amazing to me how this all started within walking distance of my house. And I tell about how uh, when I was growing up as a child, there was an old man as a neighbor and his name was John Moore. And, and my dad was a friend, so I, even as a young child, I got to know him well. Well, as a 16-year-old, he was with Orville Wilbur Wright when they flew the glider wow. that day. He was one of five. So I was, I'll say, uh, I, I was telling about, I'm here on the edge of the Ho Chi Minh Trail on the borderline between Vietnam and Laos. And uh, I can't believe that this all started within walking distance of my house. Uh, right. And uh, I tell about in that chapter about how, uh, as a kid, I would ride uh, a bike um, across. This was once they paved the road. I think I might have been five years old when they paved the road. But uh, 
as a little bit older kid, I would ride across two bridges. And, and uh, when I went to that Wright Brothers Memorial, generally there was nobody there but me. So it was year, years later that they, it would become a state park. So I was free. I would climb the winding staircase up to the top and the granite came up, as I recall, to about- On the inside of it. Yeah, I'd wow. climb all the way to the top and you could look out across the ocean wow. and, and everywhere, but the granite was high enough up that there's no danger of me falling from up there, but uh, but I used to do that. And what was strange is most of the time I'd be all by myself, wouldn't be anybody around uh, <laughs> back then. Uh, and uh, But anyway, I remember uh, doing that. But Did you ever share that story with some of your uh, fellow military guys that, that you uh, were this close to, you know, you, you knew somebody who knew the Wright brothers? Uh, tell you the truth. In Vietnam, I don't ever recall telling that story to anybody. Because it just seems like it would just be, see, see that jet airplane? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and tell you the truth, though, I will say this. I talk about how uh, I was really, uh, after so many months, I was so stressed out that, uh, well, I talk about in, in the final chapter of the book, when I came back from Vietnam, my hands were shaking to exactly. the point that if I read a newspaper, I laid it on a table in front of me, and I woke up in a panic. Even when I got married, my wife was alarmed by the fact that I would, I think waking up in a panic was associated with thoughts of possibly... Uh, enemy walking up on our ranger team at night while I was asleep or something. But within about a year, I started, uh, I started getting, I could, uh, you know, I started getting where waking up in a panic was not frequent and, uh, and my hands weren't shaking like they were. Uh, when I came from Vietnam, I had an overwhelming urge to tell friends about how how I appreciated so much surviving Vietnam, sure. but they could not relate because they hadn't been there. Right. So uh, it seemed like they, uh, I mean, they listened, but it, it was like they weren't relating to what I was telling them. But uh, but anyway, uh, I've, heard, uh, I've heard Vietnam was kind of the first war that was on TV. Yeah. Right. So mm -hmm, yeah. when you came back, I mean, yeah. I guess there was just a different awareness of what was yeah. going on to some degree. If you uh, a lot of times, if you turn on a video about the Vietnam War, they'll start it and you'll hear them chopper blades in the background. Right. Uh, and, but I tell you, though, that is a is a most comforting sound that I heard <laughs> in Vietnam right. when chopper blades, when I could hear those choppers coming that for a five-man ranger team, that's the most comforting thing sure. that you can hear. And uh, and uh, anyway, uh, that uh, on I tell about in my book though that one that one time I guess the people that I admired the most in Vietnam were those gunship pilots, mainly because on a few occasions they probably saved us. But uh, on this one mission, when they put I was a team leader and they put me in, uh, put our team in to to uh, secure that, that dying chopper, and we find out uh, that the pilots were both dead. Well, here's the problem. That, that chopper was on fire, and she, she had just lifted off the fire base with a full load of that JP-4 jet fuel, and we knew she was going to explode. So uh, I called the lift ship, and I said, we don't know how to get into this cockpit to get those bodies out. So I look up and here comes the little bird, what we call it, that, that uh, glass bubble, we called it the, a loach or a little bird. I, I mean, you could hear rangers call him either one, but uh, we saw him come in and land almost right on top of us. And they jumped out and opened that cockpit for us and helped get the bodies out. And uh, 
Anyway, we were about 30 feet away when, when the fire started cooking off the munitions, the bullets and the rockets. But we had just come around, carried the bodies around the front of the chopper, so we, we had just barely avoided getting hit. But anyway, we dropped right behind a fallen tree and within a minute that chopper exploded and uh, it, that when it was the explosion was so powerful that uh, if we hadn't been laying down, we, we would have never survived. But we, uh, but we were being showered with uh, bur uh, small pieces of a red hot uh, uh, pieces of metal and uh, and burning fuel. Our team was uh, we were swatting you know the fire off wow. of each other. But uh, what happened when I when after that explosion, you couldn't find uh, what was a fully intact helicopter gunship, and they're pretty long. Uh, you couldn't find a piece of metal more than three inches long anywhere. Wow. That's how powerful the explosion was. Yeah. And so you do do you come straight home? To uh, the Outer Banks. From... Uh, what happened? Uh, we landed in Oakland, California, and I, I, I they, uh, they did my paperwork to release me from the service, and then had a flight across the country. And my, my mother and uh, let's see, uh, my mother and another relative, I think, met me in Norfolk, Virginia, I believe. And uh, so when I, when I came home, I was. Uh, I was wearing my dress uniform, and when that wall came uh, the other day on open on the opening ceremony, I wore that same dress that uniform right? at, at the wall. That's how come I guess I was getting so much attention that day wearing my dress <laughs> uniform. Sure. And people people were coming over wanting to interview me, but uh, the uh, this lady uh, Lisa uh, Brickhouse Davis, uh, ninety four point one on the local right. radio channel here. Right. I think she was great. I mean, she did an interview with me and. By the way, the uh, the funny part about it, that old man that was with the Wright brothers was her great grandfather. Is that right? Yeah, that Lisa Brickhouse Davis. Huh. Uh, her uh, her her uh, her mom lives in Wine Cheese, is eighty one, and uh, her name's Karen. And uh, John Moore was Karen's grandfather. Wow. Yeah. So uh, very cool. So anyway, uh, that that was. Uh, interesting but this uh, I tell a lot about that old man though he I mean just briefly they took him to Washington DC to interview him about his experience with the Wright brothers okay. and he had no education and and uh, on Collington Island you could see him walking around barefoot with his uh, pants leg rolled up half, halfway to his knees and uh, when he got out of the car in Washington DC he had shoes with him but he didn't have he got out barefoot and the police officer said uh, he said shoes are required up here and uh, John Moore playfully said to the police officer that I, I was born barefoot and the police officer's response were, you were born naked, but I'm going to ask you to keep your clothes on while you're here. <laughs> but, but just to give you a feel for what, what the guy was like, they asked him how many children he had. He had nine children. And he said, I don't know. I haven't burned the marsh off lately. <laughs> and, hey, and another guy spoke yeah. up and said, I heard you had 14 children. And he said, that sounds about right. <laughs> so he, he, was a, he, was, uh, he was a piece of work, that guy. That's I tell you, John Moore. Yeah, he was a real funny guy.
And so you get back to the beach. Do you get right back into fishing? Uh, uh, this uh, this guy Murray Bridges. That jet, this past summer he was 89 years old and he was still still crabbing. He still wow. had crab pots on his boat, but he uh, he got a cut on his hand right. and he, and he was tending his soft shell crabs in the shedder and that V I B R O uh, that bacteria got in his hand. And, uh, and it went right up his arm rapidly within a couple of days. And, uh, and they were operating on him in Elizabeth City, uh, uh, taking uh, flesh. And, uh, but anyway, he had a pacemaker and he, he, uh, he had a heart attack while they, were, while they were operating on him uh, up there, had a major heart attack and died. But, but he, was, uh, he was still working on the water at 89 wow. there. He'd be, uh, matter of fact, he, he, is, uh, he would have been 90 this month, December. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, and so you got. Uh, I went fishing with him. That's what I did when I got. Oh, see, when you got I, back. I, I, yeah. Okay. See, I had been a crabber before, but when I came back from Vietnam, I, uh, needless to say, I didn't have equipment ready to go to sure. work and stuff. So I fell right in with his fishing crew, and we we were we had a haul scene at that that spring when I came back that we were fishing in the ocean down in South Nags Head. There weren't the people here then that there are now. I mean, we could drive all up and down the beach and some days not, don't even see hardly anybody. I mean- And a hull sand is basically a big net. You just, yeah, you we, just motor we, out a little bit. What, what we do, we, we run it from the beach or leave an anchor on the beach and we take a dory and, and run that net out in, in like a half moon shape. And we let it sit there until a fish came, come down and get inside. Then we pull the outside end around with, uh, into the beach, trapping some fish inside. You don't gill the fish, but the, you know. But we can we could pull them to the beach that way is what we did. And, right. uh, but anyhow, uh, Murray was a very aggressive fisherman. I can remember one day that we sat in that when the ocean was rough and uh, coming in, we got flipped end over end on the outside bar. With your dory. We, we, wait, we waited for three seas to come by, but in this case, I was yelling at Murray, there's another one coming, but he, after the third one, he took off, you know, he was gonna follow that third one in, and the fourth one caught us and flipped us end over end, threw him out, Jeez. and, uh, but I remember at one point I was in, I've somehow still in, was still inside a door, even though she had flipped and I was still inside <laughs> of her, but uh, she was uh, half sunk. But uh, I remember looking and, and he, he was caught in the sea coming right beside me coming in. Yeah. So, so anyway, yeah. Uh, but Murray, Murray was tough though. But, and how long have you had your own boat? Or, uh, or well, let's back up for a second. What was what was the fishing scene and the crabbing scene like way back then when you came it, back in it, like seventy five ish or something like that? It was uh, well back. See, right now we we have uh, really good uh, pot pullers. What I mean when you when you come to the crab traps and we hook the buoy and we we quickly put the line in into this uh, pot puller, a spinning wheel, and it'll pull the pot puller yeah. for us. It's basically it, an electric winch that yeah, speeds up the process. Yeah, that's what it is, electric, yeah. And uh, now you still get a good workout because a lot of times when you come to a crab pot, when you hook that buoy, it's already, if you're fishing down tide with the tide, that pot's already tight out behind you. So you got to really strain to get it in the pot puller. You still get a, a hard workout, but, uh, but anyway, back then, we we didn't know uh, we, when I first came back. Uh, we we were just then learning about crab traps. We'd always use those oh, trot yeah, lines, right. and we were learning about the crab traps. But see, 
there were there were lots of crabs back then but we didn't know about the see today we put uh cull rings in the pots in order to get rid of the little crabs okay. so we we don't want to be bothered uh spending a lot of time all day culling little crabs right. we, we weren't so what happens some crabbers say well marine fishers is making me put these cull rings in i i, I want to catch as many crabs as i can well we find out the smart guys have learned that yeah, if you're if you've got if you marine fisheries makes you put three colorings in a pot, you're way better off to put six in there <laughs> because you want to get rid of the right. small crabs before before they eat your bait. <laughs> oh right. Yeah, we put colorings in the downstairs of the pots too, so when they go in before they ever go upstairs. So are you want, making your own pots? Probably. Yeah, yeah wow. I make my own, and that's another thing we've learned over years that. Uh, there's a fine technique to making pots that'll really catch and, and hold the crabs once they're in there. Right. Say for instance, if, uh, if a crab, uh, there's still some things that we don't know. I mean, like for instance, if they go in a crab pot in the bottom, they, their natural tendency is to want to go up. So we have two holes in the upstairs for them to get into the upstairs. Right. And, uh, but, if your pot, if it rusts out and a hole comes in the in the flat part of the upstairs and they're up there, if they if they they if they see uh, they uh, uh, crabs have have uh, great vision. If they if there's a hole in there, usually every crab in that pot will go out that hole. Gotcha. Uh, uh, but anyhow, if a hole gets in the upstairs, once they're up there. If, and and there's a hole in your upstairs, like in the flat part of it, or where they're walking around up there. If once they get back downstairs, they will find their way back out of those funnels. Yeah. Uh, generally, so uh, so I mean, we've learned that. So, but anyway, there is a fine technique. To, there's a lot of uh, things about making a crab pot. Some are a lot better than others. And I I watch people making crab pots nowadays, and when I look at them. I'll say, okay, this is good. This year, this isn't. The funnels yeah. are very important. A lot, right. a lot of lot of important things to make. What, what time of the year is crab pot building? Is well, I'm making crab pots right now, and uh, I uh, I started um, uh, making some. Uh, my son got out of the business, got into real estate, and uh, and anyway. Uh, the last couple of years, I've been using some pots that we had, but as they start to, to wear out, uh, I'm, I've been uh, rapidly working making crab traps gotcha. for the past a couple of months now, and I'll continue that right on in. Making making crab traps by yourself is time consuming, but but if you if you stick to it, like like some parts of it, I'll do while I'm watching TV, you know, right right, right at home. And so walk, walk me through the process a little bit. You got, you go out in the morning. Oh yeah. What, yeah. what time are you going to start? Uh, okay. Uh, generally like right now we're, well, my boat's down in Wanchi. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll meet an hour before daylight in, on Collington Island. My mate will meet me over there. Uh, his, his name's Tom Finyak. He came down from New York in 1990 and he has his own boat, but right now he's working on my boat with me which as I'm getting older, I don't know if I'll ever, I used to work all the time single-handed by myself and yeah. I don't know if I'll ever do that again. But uh, but although uh, I'm still very capable of pulling the crab pots mm -hmm. and uh, 
Right now, I have a steering wheel on my boat, so in order to make better time, he'll steer the boat sometimes. Right. And once I get two baskets of crabs full, he'll he'll jump, I'll steer and pull the pots for a couple of pots while he's putting leads on the baskets and uh, right. and whatever. So, but anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll meet about an hour before daylight, get down to Juan Cheese, and we aim to be going out to harbor while you can, when you can hardly see, right. but, uh, and start pulling those. And how many crab pots you take it out with you? We, we, no, we, uh, they're already set out there. We, we generally okay. try to fish about 250 a day. Now, some of the guys, some of the guys are faster. Some, some guys have a steering stick uh, for, on the side of their boat and they can, uh, they can pretty much uh, uh, steer with their hip or something while, they, yeah. while they're doing something with their hands. And those guys are a little bit faster than us steering with a steering and wheel. It, and if you take 250 pots out, mm -hmm. I know that you, you drop them in a line. Yeah. Um, how many are typically in a line? Or does it just well, matter? It just all depends on what waters there, you're fishing. There, yeah, there's no rhyme or reason. Like right now, we, we have one line of pots out there that has uh, maybe... 125 and it that that one goes from the back of one cheese all the way to or all the way down outside the Oregon Inlet okay. beacons but uh but what we're doing we're constantly we're constantly searching experimenting with with maybe a 30 pot row here and, and 30 over here and we're we're uh we're we're uh, crabs sometimes they favor one area sometimes another now um uh, my years of fishing and crabbing, uh, when I, uh, at one point uh, from 1980 to 84, I had a Hulsane rig that we fished in the sign and it was a four-man crew to operate that and you got to be, you got to be young and you got to be strong to do yeah. that. But, uh, but anyway, uh, what I was, the point I was going to make is I really know more about what's under the water in Dare County than I do where, <laughs> where the, all the streets are in Dare County on the land. In right. other words, I think I know where every slough is from, is right? from, uh, from say, Corolla all the way to Havers. Uh, do, uh, do you have like a depth finder? Or oh, yeah, you just yeah. And I'll tell you, when we operate in the fog, uh, I, I look at the track on my GPS and it shows where all my lines of pots are. Right. And sometimes when the fog is so thick that we can't even see from one to another, I'll glance at the GPS and and uh, and uh, and I'll tell my mate. I think the next pot's slightly to the right. And uh, anyway, all of a sudden it'll show up, right? So sometimes we uh, in the fog we can't even see from one pot to another. We use that GPS is critical, and it also that GPS will show you the depth and the water temperature and uh, everything. Yeah. So you're out. That you start at first light, yeah. and uh, what time are you getting off the water? Uh, we can pull that 250 pots. Yesterday we we were hustling because we knew the wind was going to really blow. So we were right. we were really making time. And yesterday we finished that 250 pots, and we're uh, we're at the dock in Wanchies before noon. But most of the time we'll finish up about noon or something like that. And we we can't can't see how to start right now. See in the summertime. You can you can fish pots at uh, at 5:30 or possibly even sooner in yeah. the summertime, but now we we can't see how to fish the pots until like 6:45 or something. Right. Even after the time change, it's like 6:45. And are you uh, 
you're pulling the pots, you're pulling the crabs, you put the pot back into the water. Right. We we rebait. Uh, what the uh, pot comes up. Uh, I I unhook, dump dump the crabs, dump dump the uh, the old bait, and uh, and rebait. Uh, this time in the water, when the water's cold, I'll tear one fish partly in half to release that oil. So yeah. we don't we don't do that in the hot part of the summer. We don't need to. Uh, but this time of the year, in order right. to make sure I track those crabs, I'll tear one fish. But uh, but like yesterday, the crabs are really, they go into pots, but they're really not eating much bait now. So we, we where I was using eight fish per pot in the summer, I'm down to two right now, okay. putting two, two to a pot. And... And how many bushels? I mean, uh, we usually this year uh, uh, down here at Juan Cheese, out of that 250 pots, we have caught as high as 35 bushels. And uh, now yesterday, with the water being cold, we only had 15. But uh, but the price is starting to ease up a little bit. So usually that's so it's a little trade off. Yeah, yeah, you might not produce yeah, as much. It's right. a supply and demand. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. And. Uh, when if we catch 35 bushels, some of these guys that are fishing more gear than us, you know, you can figure a lot of crabs are being caught. Some of them catching more than we are. So uh, between and another thing, the there's so many regulations on fishing now that they force so many people into crabbing as the only means of livelihood Same. right now. Yeah, I mean, there's so many restrictions on fishing, but I mean, <clears throat> I won't get into it too much, but there's so much politics involved in fishing. In other words, you got different user groups and, and there is a user group other than commercial fishing that has a lot more money and influence than commercial fishermen have. Right. So that has influenced the laws. I mean, I'll just give you an example. We're allowed to catch seven red drum in one day. But they've written the law to where if we catch seven, we got to throw them back because uh, we uh, we have to have uh, a bycatch, an equal amount of weight of a bycatch, and it has to be a specific kind of fish. And uh, so generally, they've got the law written where if we catch seven red drum, we're not going to be able to keep them anyway. Uh, so that's what we run into, you yeah. know, uh, with the laws like that. But. Um, and so if you're keeping your crab pots in all day, I mean, every day, uh -huh. are, you, are they just staying in the sound like yeah, all well, summer long? Well, well what, what we did this summer, sometimes uh, they'll start getting a little bit of algae growth on them. Right. So we generally, we, we'll generally take 50 pots and set in a row and we might bring 50 in to dry out for right. a while and keep interchanging like that to where... Uh, we, we want to make sure to keep try to keep the pots as clean as possible. Right. And uh, that's and, generally the way that, we do it. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then there's, a, I guess there's a dead period in January, is that right? Uh, we, we, uh, we got a closed pot season, they, uh, uh, which uh, they, they go out to uh, clean up the signs if in, in storms, if pots get scattered around, uh, there's always, you're, you're, there's always gonna be some that, that, that uh, people uh, after storms don't find and they'll take uh, groups of uh, several boats out there and they're looking around picking all those up in, right. in the month of January. And and usually February, uh, unless, it, I mean, it's not always the case, but it's usually too chilly to do much in February. And if, and if a hurricane comes, you pull them all out? Yes, we, uh, we, we keep watching and see. Uh, sometimes uh, it's really... Uh, 
uh, testy on whether the hurricane is going to hit us head on or or if it's going to be inland or offshore. Yeah. Like if it's going to be offshore, we're going to get northeast winds. So uh, certain areas we're we can protect ourselves and leave the gear uh, out, but uh, we do not want any gear left in the water if the if a storm's going to come by on the west side of right. it. We get right. a lot of flooding. Oh, and I like for instance, I will briefly touch into that. As, as a child, we had uh, two hurricanes, uh, Donna in 1960 and Hazel in maybe 64. But I'll briefly, on Collington Island, back then, uh, my, my family had no TV. We, we, uh, when, when a storm was coming, we had a ra some kind of a radio, but, uh, but my dad wasn't very good about uh, knowing uh, what was going on in order to protect the family. So in this uh, storm, Donna, I was uh, the wind. The winds were blowing more than a hundred miles an hour out of the south. We were getting a direct hit from Donna, and uh, anyway, uh, I remember that all of a sudden the wind stopped. So I went out in the yard, and I was uh, uh, I was over by uh, south of the what is the second bridge in Collington. Well, now they, there's a little uh, causeway built up. I mean, like a, a roadbed that's built up and it comes up high toward the bridge on both sides. Well, back then, everything was low and the bridge was low. It was a different bridge and it was real low. Right. And, and I'm looking up in uh, up the, uh, the bay to the north of Collington and I said, oh my gosh, I, I saw a wall of water coming with, with a, a wooden, a small wooden skiff was flipping end over end yeah. as it was coming. What, what happened, the eye was passing by and we were getting ready to get that backside of the storm. So instead of south winds, we were getting ready to get the northwest. Wow. So I ran and we got my mother and uh, I was, uh, to for somebody to know where we were, uh, over where the fire station is in Collington now, when you cross the second bridge and take a left about a hundred yards, you go right to, by the fire station. Right. Well, at where the fire station is now, there was a high hill and a community building on it. Well, anyway, we're we're down down to the end of that lane south of there. So I grab, I, I got my mother and my sister and my brother, and. Uh, Trying to remember, it seemed like my dad stayed at the house. But anyway, uh, before we could get to that community uh, building, uh, going up that road, uh, the water was almost up to our neck. And as a matter of fact, I don't. My mother wasn't strong enough. We weren't carrying. I mean, helping her, she probably wouldn't have made it. But anyway, we got on that hill and in that community building that was wow. up there. It was like. Uh, that community building was used for, I think they, when they voted, uh, the elections were held in that or something. Right. Uh, but anyway, that's what we did. We, we got on that. But yeah, those two, uh, Donna and Hazel, were two memorable hurricanes from back then. Wow. But now, hey, on, now on a storm with the road being uh, built up like it is, now if there's any wall of water that comes, it pretty much, that roadbed catches it and the water swirls around in that bay up there, but the water will eventually come up, but we don't get like a tidal wave coming down on us down, down there. I still own that, that property where, where my dad, uh, I think my dad said he built that house in 1922 down there, but it's not, the house is not there anymore. But, uh, 
But anyway, uh, and do you have like a little barn? Don't you have like yeah, a shed have, or something? I, I have a, a shed where where I go in there. I've got a TV and stuff in it, and I'll make make crab traps in there, and and and, uh, and have my computer and everything in there. So uh, anyway, and, and do you I, pull your boat in there as well? Uh, well, I've got there there my place in Collington. If you cross the second bridge and you look to the south, there's a big metal A roof over top of the docks down there, and that's. That's where, like, when the crabbers come in, we're in the shade underneath that dock. I mean, where we put pallets of crabs, and I put them inside the cooler. But, uh, right. but anyway, that's where uh, I used to have eleven crabbers, and I'm so happy I don't have eleven now because crabs are harder to sell now than they were back years ago. But uh, there's too too many people doing it now. But right. uh, but anyway, uh, oh, in from 1986 and now. Uh, gradually, my crew got older and older. Uh, two, I can think of two of them that are no longer living, and uh, and several have uh, health issues and they fell by the wayside. So we're down from eleven. We're down to five. five well, we're down actually four of us now. One of our younger guys has got bone cancer, I think. So uh, we're down to four of us left now. And when you say four of us, that's four guys out of that one little area right there? Well, the four guys that, that deal with me. My my business is called uh, Charlie Beasley's Outer Bank Seafood. And uh, and I see for years, I've sold crabs in New York and Philadelphia and sometimes in Chicago. But, uh, but um, we've done that for years. But uh, now, as I'm getting older, I'm happy that I don't. Uh, I'm I'm eventually going to phase out of it. But I'm happy that I don't. Well, I'm I'm not able to handle as many crabs as I used to. I mean, I'm physically I can still stack the crabs on the pallets, but I don't want to have to handle the volume that we used to handle. I can remember sending as many as ten pallets with 24 bushels on a pallet to New York in one day, you know, sometimes. Well, now New York couldn't, I'd scare the guy to death if I sent him uh, 10 pallets <laughs> now up there. What happened they, uh, in New York, there used to be the Fulton Fish Market right at Chinatown, and now they're out at Hunts Point in the Bronx or something, and, uh, and the business is nowhere near as good up there as it used to be. Do you have the same trucks? Good well, uh, uh, we, when we ship to New York, we put on, on freight trucks other people's like Wan Cheese uh, Cheese Fish sold their business uh, to some people out of Canada. And uh, then there's a guy out of Virginia uh, that uh, that comes down and picks up crabs. So we, we put, we, we don't have to, I used to haul crabs on my own truck over to a picking house in Englehard for years. Right? We did We did that for about 20 years which was good because when my kids were growing up, by two o'clock in the afternoon, I got my truck loaded and I had another dri a driver so I could come home like two o'clock in the afternoon. We'd play golf in the afternoons. But gotcha. now we ship crabs into New York, So, but my kids are grown. But uh, So now sometimes it might be five o'clock before I get away from over there or right? something. But uh, but anyway, it, it works out. You know. mm -hmm. There's, I met a guy, he may not be with us, anymore. Uh, his last name was Baum, and he was right on the creek, but on the north side of the causeway, the uh, the, the Collington Road. And uh, he, he was a member of uh, Kitty Hawk United Methodist Church. And I remember meeting him. He's like, see that house across the creek? I was born in that house right over there. <laughs> um, but he, he, I think he was a serious old timer that uh, grew up. But there's a lot of Baums, I know. Uh -huh. yeah. So 
probably could be anybody. But um, anyway, the name of the book is uh, Vietnam War Lesson of a Lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, it's part of the, the, the Ranger Airborne. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robbie Beasley is the author. Yeah, uh, it, just put this I, book out. Listed my name. My name's really Charlie Robinson Beasley Jr. And they have me listed there as Charlie Beasley. But uh, so a lot of people still call like people from New York. They'll they'll refer to me as Charlie, right. and I don't even get into telling them that local people call <laughs> me Robbie. You know, but uh, but anyway, this book I will mention. It's got Charlie Beasley there, but. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and you can get this book at Downtown Books in Manio, and if you don't live here, you can always give them a call, and they can probably ship one to you. Yeah, oh yeah, sure, we could do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, excellent. Uh, any any projects coming up? Any other books? To... Uh, not really. Uh, I I tell you, I spent a lot of time, like in the evenings. Uh, I, I would talk to fellow. I still talk to fellow rangers from Vietnam right? now, but uh, they would remind me of of some of the things that maybe I, I had had skipped my memory, or uh, and they would remind me. It was so, but it took me a couple of years in the evenings uh, writing this book, and uh, so I I really don't have any plans to write another one. I probably could write write one about our fishing experiences from from my early days on yeah. out, but I'm not. I don't know if I would want to do that. I mean, <laughs> uh, I don't know if you ever knew a guy I grew up with named Billy Beasley. He he he's no longer living, but he he owned he owned that Billy's Seafood. He started. Oh, is that right? He, he started it as nothing but look like a landing house, and now. That that business does millions of dollars every year. Uh, I'll say this: business. my wife and I we came here. Uh, we spent a summer here in, jeez, uh, probably ninety five ish, and and there were there used to be a bunch of Billy Seafoods all up and down the highway. Well, he had he had one. Uh, he had uh, two I can think of right now. One up toward Kitty Hawk, and he had one there close to the uh, post office there in Kildo Hills, right. and. Uh, so he had visions of grandeur back then, but he, he learned he didn't want the headache of gotcha. those other ones. But the one on the island is the one that, that people That's gravitate. The That's okay. the one they gravitate to. And, and I will say this, I, I'm in the back of that place uh, talking, the, the sun's all run it now, and they have first class uh, stuff though. They have uh, fresh, they, they'll be back there skinning out, they taking the hide off the tuna and everything, and they know just how to cut those nice. steaks and take the vein out of it. They, they know everything about, uh, so so really people, that the reason they do millions of dollars a business in a year is because uh, they know what they're doing, they yes. got a great product, which that's the case anything in life uh, you're not going to be long lasting unless you do have something that's sort of quality about it you know right. but uh but this uh billy beasley what a character he was uh we were down at the teacher's lair marina one morning years ago and uh it was windy and we were waiting for the wind to die down and the uh, fish commissioner named dave fletcher he was an easygoing guy but uh he walked up and he said, Billy, if you, uh, well, first let me tell you, Bill, Billy was, uh, when it was windy, he was using that time to rebuild a wooden box that held his pot puller on his boat. He was nailing it. So Dave walked up and said, Billy, have you got your uh, commercial fishing license? And Billy turned around and said, I got this hammer here. <laughs> that was his reply. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't mess with me. Yeah. He was just really, that's the way he was. In other words, he never answered anything in a conventional manner. That's the way that guy was. You never knew what he was nice. going to say. Yeah. Nice. 
Yeah. Well, uh, I the the stories are amazing. Yeah. I appreciate you sitting down with oh, me. Sure. I, I appreciate yeah. you writing this book. I can't I, wait to dig into oh, yeah. that. I think you'll like that. I uh, and I and I appreciate your service for our country. Oh, yeah. uh, you're welcome. Does not go un, unforgotten. So, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, Robbie, thanks for coming out. Sure, today. sure, you're welcome. Yeah. Many thanks to Charlie for sitting down with me today. I love learning about the local fishing. I hope you look for his book at Manio Downtown Books. Don't forget, be sure to check out my website, treasuresoftheouterbanks.com, and sign up for the weekly email so we can stay in touch. I promise I won't be annoying. Also, while you're on the website, be sure to check out the merchandise page because I have some new t-shirt designs I think are pretty cool. Just click on an image and drill down to the full catalog and you can see what we got. I'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode, and until that time, make it a good one.